This is your host, Michael Shermer, and you're listening to Science Salon, a series of conversations with leading scientists, scholars, and thinkers about the most important issues of our time. Actually, um, uh, you, you may have forgotten, but way back in 1994, uh, we published an article that you had uh, uh, written for the Times Literary Supplement on Afrocentrism. Oh, yes. This yes. was an old issue of Skeptic when we had first started in 92, and we, I, I bumped into uh, Afrocentrism. Yes. And, um, you know, and so we had something by Mary Lefkowitz who described it as, you know, a pseudo-history, kind yes, of an yes. analog to pseudoscience, which we deal a lot with in, in, in Skeptic. Right. Um, but I haven't really seen come across my radar in, in must be 10, 15 years, this whole issue of uh, what race were the Egyptians, was Cleopatra black, and those kinds of questions. That whole thing just seems to have faded, or have I just missed it? Um, I think it's like many things in the moment which have um, disappeared into recesses in the internet. <laughs> so uh, I think there's a world of people who, who are still pursuing those thoughts, mm. but they don't have the same salience in the world in general that they may have had for a while. That's my impression. Yeah. Because I don't hear much about it either. I mean, occasionally I, people complain to me about what I said all those years ago, but... Uh, I, I mean, you know, in the case of Cleopatra, it's really so clear that she was um, of um, Macedonian ancestry that it's a bit odd that anyone thinks anything else. I mean, she was put there by, you know, her family were put there by Alexander, right. by Alexander the Great. So right. I don't think in that case there's much doubt about it. But yeah, I know people, you know, people, people believe what they want to believe these days. Well, I think it was you that made the point that even asking the question, what race or what color were the Egyptians or, or what color was Cleopatra is, is something a late 20th century American would ask, yes. not an ancient Egyptian. Yes. I mean, um, in fact, uh, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, Herodotus famously uh, talks about the fact that the, that the world is divided into three continents, Europe, Asia and what he called Libya, what we would call Africa, um, but he's very puzzled about why, because he, <laughs> he does. They seem to him kind of uh, he's puzzled both by why they all have feminine names, why are they all the names of women? He says, but also by the question what this means, since you know he, after all, himself was born in in Asia, even though he was Greek, um, and and he travelled easily up the Nile all the way to Aswan, we think. So. So that idea that the world was sort of naturally divided in that way is, is, a, is a, it's an ancient one, but it's a bit strange. And right. they certainly wouldn't, they wouldn't have done it in terms of color, of course, because the, the people on the north coast of Africa that they knew included people like the Phoenicians, who, who were, I mean, they were, you know, they were darker than Norwegians. But they weren't the same color as typical sub-Saharan Africans. Right. And just as you say, I don't think they would have framed the question that way. It wouldn't have occurred to them that that was the right way to think about it. Well, that is the theme of your your book. To give it a proper introduction here: the lies, <laughs> the lies that bind rethinking identity. Um, I take book titles seriously. I always assume that the authors think carefully about what they're calling their central thesis of the book. So. It's not just a an illusion of identity. You're using the word lie. 
Um, why such a strong word? Well, because I think that um, one of the truths about identities is that um, for, for a variety of reasons, depending on what the identity is, people very often need uh, to have a story about them that isn't true. Mm. Um, in some cases, it's because the true story wouldn't allow the identity to do the work for them that it's doing. Uh, if um, if there isn't a natural commonality to all the people in the in France, then you can't use uh, French nationalism as a way to strengthen the French state, <laughs> right? Um, and so on. So I think. Um, maybe lies a little bit strong because not every, I don't mean that everybody who relies on these falsehoods knows them to be falsehoods. But the, but I think the falsehoods are often, as I say, sort of essential to the work we want identities to do. So the one thing that happens if you challenge the untruths is that the, the identities have to be rethought in terms of the role they play. Mm -hmm. um, a long time ago in the 19th century, Ernest Renan, the great um, French historian who was uh, he was actually conservative politically, um, said that, that history, by which he meant the study of history, the scientific study of history, uh, is often the enemy of the nation. Mm. Because the truth, about right. the, past, the, the truth about the past doesn't necessarily fit with what we, you know, what, what the people who are running the state want us to be doing. Yeah. And, uh, and as I say, he was a French patriot. He, he loved France. Right. Uh, but, but he was also convinced <clears throat> that the stories that France told about itself needed to be correct and that many of them weren't. And one of the other wonderful lines that he, that from Renaud is, is he says, um, um, nations are held as much together as much by what they, um, as, as much by what they choose to forget as by what they choose to remember. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, to that point, I was in Russia last week um, for this geek picnic thing. It's sort of a celebration of science, technology, okay. robots, AI, all this stuff. You know, big, big fun, 30,000 people in Moscow. Uh, but I had an extra couple of days, so I went to the Victory Park, where they have this huge museum um, in honor of the people who died in the Second World War. And the first thing I noticed was they don't call it the Second World War. In Russia, it's called the Great Patriotic War. Yes. And it's they really show how much they lost and suffered, particularly relative to uh, the, the Western allies. Um, I mean, just staggering, just like 27 million yes. uh, Russians died just just as uh, casualties in the war. And in addition to Stalin's purges and all that. Um, and, and, you know, when we in America, you know, we like to read about the great desert fox Rommel and and the battles in Africa and so on, where they had one, two, three divisions on each side on the eastern front. You know, they had like 200 divisions on each yeah. side. The carnage is just unimaginable. Yeah. And so they really portray, you know, what they suffered. And it's not comparable to what, you know, American, British, French suffered in, in the war. The Great Patriotic War. It's like, yeah. wow, I really got that feeling that this is part of their identity. The suffering that they endured and still uh, they continue is become part of their national identity. 
Yes. And they had this giant room uh, where it's sort of an artistic exhibition of of chains hanging down from the ceiling, just the, the, you know, like little ball chains, like for, for a keychain kind of thing. But they're, you know, like three feet long with, you know, a little hundred beads. And at, at the end of each string of beads is a, a, a little crystal teardrop. And the entire ceiling of this room, I mean, it's just mm. overwhelming, uh, it, you know, representing the number of uh, dead. So that has now become part of the Russian identity, I think, is the suffering, um, uh, you know, that they endured. Uh, yes. that n none of us can can really under understand. Right. No. No. They they did have a terrible. They had a terrible war, and um, uh, and the um, the failure. I mean, they, they tried very hard, of course, to keep out of the war to begin with, and they they made a deal with the Nazis, which which the Nazis broke, um, but. Um, but yes, there was enormous suffering all over Europe uh, that, that I think here in the United States and also in Britain, which which was protected to some extent by the by the Channel, um, yeah. even though even though there was a lot of bombing. Um, I think people don't really people who didn't live through that have have a very different sense of what the war was about than people who lived through the sort of horrors that happened on the Eastern Front. Uh, in, in the in the war between the Germans and the Russians, yeah, you know, I don't know, and also made me think. I don't know what Hitler was thinking. You know, even if he'd gotten to Moscow, you know, it's nine time zones across all the way to the Pacific. I mean, what do you do when you get there? It's just well, you know, we're lucky that we're lucky that Hitler was such a bad, bad military leader. Yeah, um, uh, there were moments when perhaps he could have could have won the war in Europe. Uh, and um, but he didn't because he was he was committed to a picture of things that was false. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and so he made serious mistakes. So then the other thing I was thinking about um, in reading your book and also just how we started this conversation, my wife is from Germany. She's from Cologne. So she's lived here now five years. And uh, after about two years, you know, we watch the daily news and so forth. Um, the impression she gets of, of how important race is in America compared to, say, in Germany. I mean, they have other issues with the Turks or whoever. But in America, it's just so it's so starkly black and white. And, and pretty much every day, there's some issue about race. Yes. And, and it seems like that's become part of our national identity, uh, this sort of racial tension. Yes. Well, we, you know, it's sort of our founding sin, the... The, the Constitution is this weird doctrine, document because on the one hand, as, as first promulgated, it maintains the status of slaves and it, uh, it gives representation in the Congress on the basis of counting slaves as a, a fraction yeah. of a person. Right. Uh, it also anticipated, of course, the ending of the, of, of slavery, of the slave trade anyway. And, um, and the, the founders were constantly talking about freedom and they, un and they understood that there was a tension I think between their talk of freedom and the reality of what they were doing with their black slaves and you know our history starts there as, a, as an independent nation and we've had a hard time getting out of it we, we fought the bloodiest war of the 19th century in order to uh, complete the process of uh, getting rid of legal enslavement and then we spent a hundred years um, not really living up to the reality of that promise. And then we had 
you know, the Civil Rights Movement and the Voting Rights Act and so on, um, which tried to give real legal meaning to the equality of black and white people. And then, of course, after two centuries of that, you have to struggle to change the social meaning. It's not, you can't just do it by changing the laws. People have to change their <laughs> attitudes. And I suppose that's what we should think we're doing now. We're trying to work towards genuine social uh, equality. And if we were to achieve social equality, uh, I think what your wife has noticed would cease to be true. We'd be less preoccupied with racial questions. Now, one of the great divides in our country is about... Um, is about how much persisting racial injustice there is. And I think a lot of, uh, I think perhaps a majority of, of white people think that because we made those changes in the 60s, uh, from Brown v. Board of Education to Loving v. Virginia, we, we sort of took white supremacy out of the, out of the federal legal system. Um, they think that, you know, well, and then we, we also did some affirmative action in the, in the late, uh, starting in the, 60s and, and going on for a while. And I think many people, many white people think, well, look, we did all that, so it's over. When you look at the statistics, I think it's hard to believe that the residual effects of uh, racial injustice in the past have gone away. Mm -hmm. um, and one has to remember that at the same time that the civil rights movement was going on, the federal government was still, for example, insisting on racial segregation in public housing. Mm -hmm. And um, And since a lot of the a lot of white wealth comes from um, from the, the new housing that people acquired in the 50s and 60s, uh, which they were then able to uh, hold on to, build up, and and maintain the capital value of. One of the big explanations for the differences in in wealth, not in income, but in wealth between blacks and whites, has to do. Uh, especially at the lower end of the income spectrum, has to do just with uh, the persistence of federal uh, racial unfairness uh, through the 50s and mm -hmm. 60s. So, I mean, so, so I think it's my own view is that, um, of course, things are much better than they were. I like to remind my students that when um, when I was born and when my parents married, they would have been breaking the law in the state of Virginia because one of them was white, one of them was right, black. Right. And that, that was true until I was a teenager. Right. Um, 1967. Yeah. So it's a long, it's a long process. I think it's important to insist that we've made progress, that, that, we, that, that we have moved forward. I mean, there are little steps back and, uh, from time to time, but the basic thrust is in the right direction. But I, I think I'm, I myself think it, it's, it's premature to declare that all over. And, and so what your wife notices on the news, I think, is a reflection of, of, of the reality that this, may, this continues to be a serious uh, set of issues in our country. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, you opened the, the lies that bind your new book with, um, I forget, it was a taxi driver. Somebody was asking you what you're, who are you? What are you? What are you? I guess, you know, are yes. you black, white, whatever. Um, and it's, it's, it's complicated. <laughs> yes. Well, I think so. Um, because of the, 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 the growing rate of marriage, uh, interracial marriages, also just international marriages more generally, um, the the meaning of our way of dividing people is constantly being challenged yeah. uh, by the reality. So if you are an African-American whose ancestors were mostly slaves and you, um, 
and, and you grew up in an African-American community, then what it means for you to be black is different from what it means for, say, a Jamaican immigrant or a Haitian immigrant or a Dominican immigrant with dark skin or a, or a Cuban immigrant with dark skin. Um, and, and also different what it means for people like me who grew up in Africa and, and come here. And so saying he, she's black or he's black with at least with those people tells you a good deal less than I think uh, people often assume. Well, let's go through those the categories you have in your book of creed, country, color, class, and culture. So five criteria there for uh, how we identify ourselves or other people. Uh, so starting with creed, obviously religion still pretty big in America, uh, not so much in Europe, but uh, here it very much matters what your religion is. Um, so how, 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 what, give us a little background on that and the history of that. Good. So I think, I mean, uh, yes, in the United States, religious identities matter a lot, and they matter more, as you say, than they do, I think, in Europe today and in some other places. Um, they matter less here than they do in some other places. In Ghana, <laughs> 100% of people would claim That's some true, yes. religious affiliation, and here it's probably now, I don't know, 80% or something like that. Um, and um, the... I mean, the main points I want to make about religious identities is first that I think we characteristically misunderstand religious identities because we focus too much on questions of what people believe and not enough on the role of religious identities in two other dimensions of life, which is on what people do and think it's right to do their, their, their practices, and also on the role of religious identities in shaping communities. So that religious identities often mean that those are the people you spend more time with. Uh, mm -hmm. you, these are the people you go to synagogue with, the people you go to temple with, the people you go to church with. Um, and, you know, especially for those um, people who identify as sort of highly religious in this country. So these are people who spend quite a lot of time with their fellow members of their religious group, uh, Mormons, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, for them, th their lives, their social lives are crucially shaped by this. And that's true independently of what other Mormons happen to believe. Um, it's not just about, you know, propositions. It's not just about agreeing to things people say. Now, one reason why I think we're over-invested in the idea of belief is because that's a Christian habit. <laughs> Christians, Christians have been fussing about belief uh, since the beginning, and a lot of the early fights in the Christian church are about doctrine. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and the great councils of the church are about settling on the creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, and so on. And if you read them, they're surprisingly specific in what they say you're supposed to believe. Right. Um, and often in, in ways that I think quite odd, because after all, um, so take, take the claim that, that um, in, in, the, in, the, in, in one of the, classic creeds, it says that, that Christ is of one substance with the Father. Now, substance there is a technical, philosophical idea. Uh, if you're an Aristotelian, you know what it is. Yeah. But most Christians, for most of human history, wouldn't have known what that word meant. And yet every Sunday they were supposed to be saying that they believed this thing about Christ's substance. And not only that, but at some points in the history of the church, people got killed 
for having the wrong view about whether Christ was the one substance with the Father or whether there were two substances. So Christianity is a bit peculiar in this way, I think. It's very, very focused. If, if you ask, if you, ask um, um, you know, the great fathers, uh, the, the intellectual people like Maimonides about Judaism, a lot of what they talk about when they're saying what Judaism is about is not about believing things, it's about doing things. Mm. Um, and if you ask Muslims what are the central elements of Islam, well, they'll, they'll say the five pillars, but that includes daily prayer, which is not a matter of belief, it's a matter of doing something. Mm -hmm. It's going to Mecca if you can, that's not a matter of belief, that's a matter of doing something. And it's charity, which is, you know, those are three of the five pillars. Right. So, um, so, so I think now Christians are inclined to exaggerate the significance of belief, but in fact, in their own lives, most Christians what matters about their religion is actually not mostly belief. It's right. mostly, as I said, morality right. and the things you do with each other. So I think we have a tendency to misunderstand, even religious people who are seriously religious, I think tend to misunderstand their own, the significance of their own um, religious identities. Now, now, one of the arguments I make in the chapter is that this leads us to make a mistake that is very damaging for relations, I think, between uh, Christians and Muslims, which is this tendency to say, well, it's all a matter of belief, and the beliefs are in the book. So we have to look in their book, and if we find anything in their book that's bad, that shows that they're bad people, because after all, they're supposed to believe what's in their book. Right. Uh, now, and so people do this with with, uh, with Islam all the time about, yes. about women. Right. But look, um, um, you know, Pakistan and Bangladesh have both had women presidents, and we haven't. <laughs> Right. <laughs> uh, and so you've got to be careful in interpreting and, and I mentioned them of course because they are constitutionally Muslim states they're states right. which are Muslim by their constitution so I think we have to be all we have to do is think about our own case so I was raised a Christian I know that no Christian I've ever met is in favor of stoning adulterers to death right, right? right. Well, it does say it does yep. say in the Torah that yep. which is for Christians is the Old Testament, or, or the Pentateuch part of the Old Testament. Uh, it does say in there that you should do that. Now I'm well aware that if that your, your Christian listeners, uh, I don't know how many of those you have, will <laughs> not that will, many, will, but <laughs> will complain that I I've missed the fact that Jesus says something about adultery, which right. he does. But what but he what he he doesn't say. Uh, I reject the law of Moses. Right. He's not saying that. What he says is. If you have no sins, you can start throwing stones. Right, right. Notice that he then doesn't throw a stone himself, and he's without sin. He's the only person that it ever has been. Right. So, so a reasonable Christian might infer from that that Christ didn't think that people should do that. But, but so I'm not saying that Christians should think that um, stones should be thrown as adulterous. I'm just saying that it does say so in the book that right. they say yep. leave it. Yep. And homosexuals too. And they, the homosexuals should be put to death as well. And again, um, you know, you, so if you think that that's what the book says, then you'll be completely perplexed by the fact that the um, American branch of the Anglican Communion, the Episcopalian Church, allows gay priests and bishops and, and marriages. You'll think, how could that be? Well, the answer is, they're just like everybody else. They reinterpret their traditions as they go along to fit their developing moral understanding. Right. And, and if, if they can do that, why can't Muslims? So these are very fluid categories, creed being part of our identity. 
changes over time. The Episcopalians have always been kind of on the cutting edge of the moral arc, as have the Quakers with regard to the abolition of slavery. So when I do debates with theists now, they, you know, they hold up uh, Bishop Wilberforce and say, look, the Quakers and, and, and Wilberforce, you know, they, they were leading Christians against the slave trade. Yeah, yeah, but their opponents were all their fellow Christians who held yes. up the Bible that said, look, yeah. slavery is endorsed right here in the great book. Yes. Uh, I mean, so, I think it's actually, I mean, not to be unnecessarily provocative, I think it's actually easier to defend the view that um, tolerance, at the very least, for homosexuals is biblically groundable than it is to hold the view that um, anti-slavery is biblically grounded, mm -hmm. because slavery is so pervasive mm -hmm. in the Old and the New Testament. Mm -hmm. St. Paul instructs slaves to obey their masters, even if they're cruel, he says. So I think, uh, actually, slavery has a better uh, textual foundation than anti-gay uh, anti stuff. Making that argument depends upon detailed things, some of which are in the book about how to how to look yep. at those passages in the Bible. But my point is only that, um, you know, I think what we have to see that that what's doing the work here isn't just the text. And so the mm. idea that the text fixes what's going on um, is is a deep mistake. Uh, and and it's a deep mistake about Christianity. It's a deep mistake about Islam. It's a deep mistake about Judaism. Think about how many contemporary Jews. Um, identify as Jewish, but, you know, eat lobster, which is clearly not allowed, according to the, according to the Torah, uh, or, you know, do one of a hundred things that the Torah says you mustn't do. Um, and we could go further and say, if we looked into it, the same is true um, about Hinduism, about Buddhism, it's not just a point about the Abrahamic religions. In all, in all of these cases, there's a mixture of belief and community and practice and you can never predict what the practice will be just by looking at the beliefs. Mm -hmm. You have to look at the practices themselves. That's right. Yeah, so like pollsters don't even ask, what is your opinion on interracial marriage anymore? Because it's not even a, a public issue. And I suspect the issue of gay marriage, they won't even be asking that question anymore in five years or so. It'll just be a non-issue. Um, I'm not sure the, the you know racial issues will go away quite so quickly. Um, you know, you and I are the same age, and uh, I was born in '54. You're a few months older than me, uh, so you're the wise one here. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I, I've kind of always been a fan and follower of, of Dr. Martin Luther King. You know, I wrote a book called you know The Moral Arc. And, yes. uh, you know, judging people on the content of their character, not the color of their skin. Okay, so that's, you know, that's 1960s. You'd think by now we would have gotten past that like like we have interracial marriage and, and soon gay marriage. And yet it's still there um, to a certain extent, particularly in the last couple of years. We've seen this return to populist nationalism, some xenophobia, tighten up the borders. And so not just here, but, you know, in England with Brexit and, and a little bit in France, uh, so I'm a little surprised about that. Maybe you're not as surprised because uh, you follow these things a little more closely internationally than I do. Maybe I don't know. What 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 are your thoughts on that? I mean, I'm um, I'm getting used to it. I, I'm sad about it. I wish that we were moving in a different direction on these things, and I think it's worth trying to think about why these things are going on. Clearly, um, you know, sometimes people say that well people reach for these forms of ethnic identification when they're under economic pressure. I don't think that's a very good account of what's going on in the United States because um, 
uh, the, we have actually at the moment very low unemployment rates. Mm -hmm. um, it's true that the objective material conditions for the vast majority of people in the bottom half of the income distribution have not been improving. In fact, they got worse, of course, in 2008, and they come back to some extent. But, mm -hmm. but over, the, over the last couple of decades, we haven't done very much to share the enormous growth in American wealth very evenly. Mm -hmm. it's, it's mostly gone to people in the top 20%, and within the top 20%, it's, it's significantly gone to people in the top 1% and then 0.1%. Right. Um, and so I agree that people's economic circumstances are not improving, but they're not really... Uh, and and we should accept that there are people, you know, there are families in the United States today where the children go to bed hungry, which is astonishing in a country as rich as ours. So I'm not saying there aren't genuine problems of poverty, but if you look to see who who shifted their votes, for example, to support the populism of President Trump, it doesn't look like it was the poorest people particularly. No, um, and in fact, 81% uh, of evangelicals voted for Trump. Yes. Clearly, they're not voting their religion there. They're voting their, their uh, political party. Trump. Yes. Well, I think so. I, if I if I knew how to to deal with it theoretically, uh, I would have had a chapter on political identities. <laughs> but I find it very hard. I mean, we've become. I talk about sort of uh, you know the fact that we're sort of tribalistic uh, in the first chapter. We've got a kind of political tribalism in the United States today. So people are tribally Republican. What that means is they side with other Republicans more or less independently of what they're arguing for. So 10 years ago, in fact, five years ago, in fact, before President Trump came along, the typical position of the Republicans on trade was very pro-trade. And the typical position on Russia was that Russia was one of our enemies. Right. Uh, Donald Trump, for various reasons, doesn't think those things. And now the typical Republican seems to be willing to vote for a guy who's bad on trade and, and friendly to Russia. Right. So they're not... It's, they're not supporting him because they've examined his views independently and thought about them and decided that he's right. They're supporting him because they're tribally, I'm not saying everybody, but it's, but most of them, I think, a significant yeah. proportion. And, and this is true about Democrats, of course. We, I'm a Democrat, and I'm tribally Democratic. I try not to be. I try to maintain what I think is the important point here, which is that... Um, just as black people are not all the same and white people are not all the same and Jews are not all the same and Catholics are not all the same. So Democrats and Republicans are different from each other in lots of kinds of ways. And the idea that, you know, all, all Republicans are racist or all Republicans are sexist or all Republicans are homophobic, not true. Right. And we need to bear that in mind. Now, it is true that the policies of, of the, the current Republican government are, in my judgment, bad for women's equality, mm -hmm. bad for racial equality, and bad for uh, lesbian and gay rights. But um, that's not because those are the aims of every Republican. And um, and there are plenty of racist Democrats, by the way. Uh, so I think we need to be, we need to draw back from our kind of instinctive tribalism about political matters as well. I think we have become more tribalistic recently. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm a bit, I don't have a theory about that. But I think one reason is that actually, um, a bunch of political leaders have been stoking tribalism. Um, and also that we have uh, news media that stoke tribalism of this sort. Um, uh, I'm, I'm not saying it's equally bad on the right and the left. 
but it's definitely there on both. Right? You know, in his uh, new book, Enlightenment Now, Steve Pinker makes the point that uh, take a subject like climate change. Now, uh, hardly anybody really knows the technical science, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, conservatives, you know, no one knows that much about it. So if I'm going to comment on it, say, on social media, all I can do is just cast my uh, vote for my team. Now, yes. my team, conservatives, we are pro-free market, pro-capitalism, pro-industry. And that Al Gore guy made that film about global warming, and he's a liberal. And therefore, that's become a liberal cause that's anti-business, anti core now that I do know about, so I'm going to cast my vote and and make a public statement about that, even if I don't know anything about climate science. Right. So, uh, you know, we need to decouple the science from the politics, but it's too late in that issue, I think. Yeah, so, I so, think one, one of the things that when people say these things about global warming, one of the things they're doing is just signaling who they are. Right. Yeah. Right. They don't really. It's part of your identity uh, thesis yeah. here that this is my identity. I'm pro free market capitalism, so on, or I'm I'm religious, so that that evolution thing can't be true, you know, and so on, whatever it is. And uh, and that's right. So they're just signaling, virtue signaling, we call it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, you know, if you if you ask how can we get out of this mess, obviously, um, well, not obviously. I think it's. It's difficult. It's challenging. If it were easy to get out of this mess, somebody would have made a proposal and we, we could have tried to follow it. But I do think that, one, there's a place in here for something that we haven't seen a lot of recently, which is kind of responsible leadership. I mean, and by that I mean the coming together of people who have different party affiliations to say, look, it's important enough for our country to get this, or for the world, to get this right, that we shouldn't... Um, invent uh, division. What should you do about a complicated scientific question? You should find the best scientists right. and see what they say. I don't have any special insight into global warming. I do. I have noticed, I'm a gardener, so I've noticed <laughs> changes in the climate, but I don't have a big theory about why that's happening or about what you should do about it. But there are people who have spent their lives thinking about this, who right. are qualified, they can recognize each other by their qualifications and by the journals they publish in. Let them, let them decide for us. Let's not. Um, yeah, we don't treat that like we do, say, oncologists. I'm only going to pick a liberal oncologist. Right, right. <laughs> and and you know, I think one reason is that um, if you pick the wrong oncologist, you 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 die. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> but if you pick the wrong climate scientist, it's only your grandchildren that are going to really suffer. People think. Right. But we're already seeing yeah. that's not true. We're already paying huge costs, um, the scientists tell me, for, yeah, right. uh, yeah. for this. And so so I think there's a role for kind of pulling responsible leadership together and saying, look, you, you don't have to be a Democrat or Republican, um, and, and we can disagree about what to do about it, uh, and maybe that will turn out to be partisan because your party's more in favor of letting the business decide by itself and my party's more in favor of regulation. But, but at least let's agree on what's – some picture of what's going on and on some of the things that need to change in order to make it work. Um, and it's actually not, I mean, this is just me talking like someone who believes in regulation, but it's not actually a good idea to encourage companies to make the choice between profits and the environment. It's better to make the rules in such a way that the companies do better if they right. respect the environment. And the way to do that is to make it illegal or to penalize companies 
that uh, violate uh, reasonable environmental regulation. So, and, and corporations will do that. If you give them reasonable regulation, it, it means that, that, that you can't compete with them by violating those principles. Right. So they'll just take that as, they can just take that as the baseline. Um, now, there are whole industries like coal, which feel that um, if we were to, um, if, if we were to have more regulation, they would be, they would simply have to disappear. Again, um, I, I'm not sure that's true. And certainly if we had gone for, for example, for um, some form of uh, cap and tr some form of trade uh, of um, pollution trade system, yeah. um, we might, many, uh, there would have been incentives for coal companies to clean up their product. And there would have been reasons for going on using coal in the circumstances where it was reasonable to do so. Mm -hmm. And it would not have led to the end of the coal industry. So I think, but all of these, what sound to me like perfectly sensible thoughts, uh, are ruled out once we have a political climate in which you can't say, wait a minute, let's not make this one of the things we fight about. We have enough things to fight about already. Right. Make this one of the ones. I mean, and so I'm, uh, I think it's very distressing. But it's a good example, as you say, of the way in which identity can do enormous damage. So your second C, so creed, country, color, class, culture. So country... Uh, this gets tapped into, I think, with the Make America Great Again or in Brexit. You know, why should we allow some faceless bureaucrat in, in, in some foreign country tell us what we can price our eggs at or whatever? You know, I can, you know, that, that, that's getting back to some kind of primal xenophobia or primal pride in one's nation. And yet, as you point out, you know, the idea of a, well, you use the word country, but state, nation, these are different, you know, configurations of language. Of geography, where the border happened to be hit, placed three centuries ago, the Treaty of Westphalia started mm -hmm. the modern idea of the nation, and yet we had nation states in you know ancient Egypt. So, so what are we talking about when we're talking about country? This is one of the places where uh, I think something that gives the whole book its shape is revealed, which is I think it's easiest to get these things clear if we look at how we got to where we are in terms of the way we think, by looking back to an earlier time when some of the modern configuration of these ideas was put in place. So modern nationalism, which is sort of taken for granted now in the world today, that and is a bunch of things, but one of the central ideas is that there's a kind of cultural or spiritual identity that goes with being a German or, or Chinese or Indian or American and that those things um, uh, are and that it's people who share that that shared spirit let's say um, that should be allowed to run their lives together that the world is naturally divided into groups of people who who share this spirit and that that spirit should be um, allowed to express itself in political arrangements by putting one nation per country, one, one people per country, one mm -hmm. spirit per country. Um, and, and this idea is um, explicit in Hegel, right. for example, uh, and, and already implicit uh, and, um, in, in other earlier German thinkers like Herder and so on. Is that that uh, kind of 19th century blood and soil? Well, I think that blood and soil uh, is connected with the thought that the spirit and the blood are one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you share the blood, right. you will share the spirit. 
and 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 that the people who share the blood are all in one geographical location, and, and that they have a kind of history embedded in that place. Right. Now, all of this is very surprising if you look back historically, because when people articulated this idea, there was hardly anywhere in the world that was at all like that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when Hannah's talking, we have the Russian Empire, the Ottoman Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and that's most of Europe. Um, we have, uh, we have, if you look into the countries that are outside those empires, France or Britain, um, they're fantastically internally diverse. Uh, until the late 19th century, a third of the people in the French hexagon didn't speak French, they spoke some other language. Mm -hmm. uh, when I went to college in England, <laughs> I had a neighbor in college who was English, um, from the north of England, from Durham, and I couldn't understand what he said because he spoke with a strong Geordie accent. Mm. Uh, wow. Geordie's Newcastle, but it was it was sort of like like that. Now, so the idea that uh, what held people in England together was that they all spoke the same language and that they all knew the same folk songs and that they all had the same relationship to Shakespeare, for God's sake, that's preposterous. <laughs> and yet that's the idea that these people put together. And the same is true, obviously, in Germany. Germany was a whole hodgepodge of distinct mm -hmm. things. Prince bishops and the Free State of um, uh, Frankfurt and um, and, and um, you know the principalities and the King of the, the King of Prussia and the, the King of Bavaria, uh, Bavaria Catholic, Prussia Protestant. I mean, mm -hmm. the very internally complex uh, Germany, uh, well in uh, well up until the point that the Prussians uh, took a, an empire of Germans and called it Germany. Um, so uh, and. Not only was it not true, and not only was it true, not true of most of the major political arrangements in the world, China is incredibly internally, still incredibly internally ethnically diverse. India is obviously incredibly diverse in language and traditions and, and even the color of people's skins. Um, obviously, the Ottoman Empire was, and, and, so, were, and so on. So all this diversity, right. all these places. But it's never actually, so, so guided by this idea, people tried to do what, people with political theories do. They try to make true the thing, <laughs> right. the thing that they already are claiming is true. That's the lie in your title. I That's mean, you can't, 1871, Germany's unified, and you can't just say, okay, we're all one uh, right. identity now. It's like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and also, they're unified, but with lots of German-speaking people outside Germany. Oh, right. right? Uh, in, 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 in many parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and obviously in Austria, but also in, in the Czech lands and uh, Slovakia and, and Hungary, there are German speakers. So there isn't a mapping of German speakers into the German state when, when, the, when the second German uh, empire is right. created. So I think, um, um, but nevertheless, in the name of this idea, France tries to make everybody in France speak French. Germany tries to make everybody speak uh, right, at least the same kind of German. So Hochdeutsch gets established as as the German literate language. Um, in England, uh, with the rise uh, of, of universal education, a standard dialect is created for the purposes of, of, of that. And of course, uh, in all of these places, very often the state is, is preoccupied with religious uh, uniformity. Mm -hmm. So not good to be a Huguenot in France. Mm -hmm so on, not good to be a Catholic in England. Um, and as a result of this, in the 19th century, there's a huge amount of enforced 
unification. People are made to speak common languages. And also expulsion, ethnic cleansing, and all that kind of thing. So this, this, this idea, which was false, people try to make it true, and the cost is a huge amount of human suffering. Right. <laughs> so that, and that's the picture, that's sort of our picture of the ideal state, right? That they have this common language and traditions. So, uh, and this is the idea, the only idea we have when we're trying to deal with some of the great problems of the world today. When we're, I don't talk about this in the book, but, um, but you know, the only language we have for talking about the question of whether there should be one or two nations uh, in Palestine, in the Palestinian territories mm -hmm. of Israel, is, um, is this language. Well, they're distinct people, so they need distinct states. Well, first of all, you know, there are lots of Arab Israelis and, 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 uh, and Palestinians come in in every one of the Abrahamic sects except Judaism. Uh, they come in every kind of Christianity and they come in, uh, in different kinds of Islam. So they're not by any means religiously homogeneous. They all, but they're just people who were at a certain point in history living in, um, in the Palestinian part of the Ottoman Empire. That's, that's what they have in common. Mm -hmm. I don't mean it isn't anything, it's something important. But, um, but if you're trying to decide what to do in that part of the world, this way of thinking is going to force you into thinking in terms of two peoples, two states, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. There's a perfectly obvious alternative picture, right? Which is that here's a bunch of territory which has a boundary around it. Within it, you should have a democratic society in which people are respective of their, their religion and their racial ancestry and whatever you want to say, uh, work together as free citizens to run the, run the state. Now, that violates a principle of Zionism, which is, the, which is the view that there should be a home for the Jewish people in Palestine. I, I'm not... Um, I don't have any uh, deep commitment to thinking that that's a bad idea, but it isn't the only possible idea about how to think about that territory. And if you think in these 19th century ways, it will be the only way that will occur to you. You mean, so a, th you mean the two-state solution is a derivative of this 19th century idea of every people needs a nation with a border yeah. and a wall or troops or something that defends right. their territory. Right, okay. Right. And, and, and that... And that we know what the peoples are. Yeah, all oh, right, clearly right. defined. And, yeah. and they're not. And they're not uh, that way. The Palestinians are, uh, what my main point about most identities is, yes, there's such a thing as being Palestinian, though it has vague boundaries, but no, Palestinians are not all the same. Yes, there's such a thing as being Jewish, but that has vague boundaries too. There's such a thing as being Israeli, but that has vague boundaries, and um, right. and so on. And... Um, and they've just voted a resolution in the Knesset to to to, to sort of make it more clear that Israel is a Jewish state. But um, uh, that itself, you know, could go various ways. Uh, Britain is an Anglican state. It, uh, it, so, but, but back one step, is this hmm. why the moving the um, um, the embassy to Jerusalem was such a big issue because it's part of that 19th century it's idea. It's part of that picture, right? So not only do people have, um, not only is there a people, but there's a territory and it has its natural center, right? So the spiritual center hmm. of, of Muslim identity in that part of the world is clearly Jerusalem. Obviously the spiritual center of Jewish identity in that part of the world is Jerusalem too. It's also one of the holiest uh, cities mm -hmm. for Christians. <laughs> so, um, so um, 
So of course they are all fighting over it. Right. Um, whether it's helpful in the early 21st century to try and settle questions about uh, terrible relations between two or three communities in that part of the world by appealing to these 19th century pictures is another question. I'm not going to be able to solve the Israeli-Palestinian question, but I hope I can get people to see that some of the ways that people bring to thinking about it are just not helpful. Um, you know, we, yeah, we, we've, we've grown accustomed to the taboo against changing national borders such that when Putin reaches down and redraws a little bit of Crimea, the world goes crazy, although nothing is done to stop him. Um, and yet that, that used to happen all the time. The, the borders yes. were constantly changing yes. all the way up until the, the Second World War. And then after that, it's kind of frozen, and maybe by the yeah. 70s. Yes. So again, um, you know, Eritrea escaped from Ethiopia in, that, in the post-1970. Uh, post mm. um, uh, there are a number of examples. Um, there's the example in, in, uh, in the Indonesian archipelago. Mm. But um, so... And that's because there are two conflicting thoughts here, right? One is the sort of inviolability of the nation state, and the other is the the, the need for people to be able to, peoples defined independently of states, to be able to live in their own state. The Eritreans said, we are not Ethiopians. Hmm. Well, there are lots of people in Ethiopia who are not um, Amhara, so... I don't know why the Eritreans got to be the ones that were allowed to escape, but anyway, they were. And, you know, uh, if the Eritrean government were better than it actually is, I wouldn't mind so much. But um, but I think there's a, it's just not a very helpful picture, I think, for resolving the things. And especially, maybe because I grew up in Ghana. So in Ghana, we have, um, uh, I don't know, 70 or 80 languages that are recognized by the wow. government. Uh, we, the government uh, schools teach, I think, 11 of them or something like that. And government goes on in English, but in the courts you can speak any of these languages, and so there have to be interpreters for all these languages. Um, significant proportion of the population has English as a first language now, but most people are still uh, people who's, for whom English, which is the government language, is the second language. I'm reminded of, uh, I'm here in California, I'm reminded of a bumper sticker I saw, why the hell should I press two for English? <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't know what they do in Ghana. Yeah. Press well, 11 for... <laughs> press 117. Uh, I mean, the, the South Africans have 11 official languages uh, since uh, the end of apartheid. So I think, um, you know, and the point is, you know, Ghana does perfectly well as a nation without having one language. Uh, we, we've got uh, about a quarter of Ghanaians are Muslim and about, I don't know, more than half probably are Christian. And then there are people of other religions. Um, that's fine too. Uh, England has survived since the Reformation perfectly well with a large Catholic minority. <laughs> Didn't need to turn everybody over to, uh, to Protestantism. Um, and so on. We think of um, Scotland as a Protestant country, but Glasgow, which is the largest city in Scotland, has a majority Catholic population. Mm. So the idea that these things all have to line up, that religion and language and literature all have to line up with your state membership, I think that's it's an unhelpful idea. And if you push it, it leads to people treating other people very badly because mm -hmm. it leads them to saying, you have to speak. It leads to people in this country who who shout at people they hear speaking Spanish, right? Right. Now, if you hear somebody speaking Spanish, you have no idea whether they can speak English. Right. The vast majority of Hispanics in the United States. In fact, 
Well, the vast majority of Hispanics in the United States can speak English. Right. And 99% of them think that their children ought to learn English. It's completely right. uncontroversial. Right. There's no, there's no serious Spanish-only movement in the United States right. among Hispanics. So if you've got a community that, for one reason, historical reason or another, wants to speak some language other than English some of the time, but they speak English as well, and then therefore they can answer questions and, and uh, act as jurors and vote in elections and understand political campaigns, they can participate in our citizenship and have as many languages as they like. Um, so I think that this sort of thing, I mean, you must, it, it, it's not just that you know English is the language of the United States, it's that Spanish isn't the language of the United States right. that these people care about, and that's unhelpful. Um, so if we took a big picture, could you could you foresee us, I don't know, in the next thousand years returning to something like city-states and the nation-state idea would just dissolve, mainly because of economic pressures. If we just open the borders, people can trade with whoever they want, travel wherever they want, live wherever they want. You'd be a New Yorker. I'd be a California or Los Angeles <laughs> and, or whatever. Um well, since, we it, since it's like, fluid and historically rel relatively yes. new, maybe it could yes. go away. I mean, I think that, that um, well, in that picture, uh, political units are continue to be defined by geography, right? All oh, right. And um, maybe that'll happen. So I, maybe you'd I, still end up with Sparta and Athens, and we'd yes. be in conflict. <laughs> yes. So I think I think that um, what I would like to see is uh, yes, more freedom. More flexibility. I don't think it's wrong for people to limit movement to some extent, just because uh, the modern state, for example, um, provides services to citizens that it doesn't provide to non-citizens. And if you, if anybody can go anywhere, people are likely to move to the place where the services are best. And while in the long run that may lead to the equalization of services, in the short run it leads to putting pressure on good societies and making them worse. And mm -hmm. that, while, while it's helping the people who are coming in, um, I can, it seems to me reasonable for the people who are already there to say we want to set limits on mm, this. Right. But in the long run, if you think that... Um, you know, the, the, the basic liberal thought, and here liberal means something that is shared with conservatives in the United States, and liberal in the, in the philosophical sense. The basic liberal thought is that, is that people should be managing their own lives, making the big decisions for themselves, that they shouldn't be made for them by states or mm -hmm. churches or, or parents or anybody like that. And then once you're grown up, you're, you get to manage your own life. And I think that one of the big constraints on managing your life in the world today is that you can't decide freely where you go. Right. And so, yes, it would be, I think, preferable to go to allow people to do that a little bit more freely. I think you have to understand, though, that people are um, shaped by the communities they grow up in, uh, and that if you have kind of absolute Brownian motion, if you have just people <laughs> moving wherever they like, 
you'll get what you get with Brownian motion. That's a nice a, metaphor. I like that. <laughs> all the gases will mix. Well, then I, that leads me to your third sea of color, which we've already touched upon. But uh, again, big picture, if people were just free to move around and there weren't any political, legal barriers to interracial marriage, say, for example, more and more people would look like you or Tiger Woods or whatever. And, and you, mm -hmm. I don't know what you are. And mm -hmm. then it becomes less important if I can't identify you. Yes. So I, I think that this is happening to some extent. Um, I have a favorite photograph of mine, uh, which I don't, I don't have it here, so I can't show it to you, but, um, which is me and my husband and many of my family at my nephew's wedding. Now, my nephew has a Norwegian father, and my sister is his mother, so she's half Ghanaian and half British. He was marrying in Namibian. In a, okay. in a village in a village right. in northern Namibia and we're all dressed in our various costumes uh, <laughs> I'm dressed in in the cloth that people wear in Asante for weddings the kente cloth my Nigerian brother-in-law another of my brothers-in-law is there dressed in the, the Yoruba uh, uh, configuration and in the front row are cousins and sisters and people all dressed differently some of them are Norwegian some of them are British some of them are Namibian some of them are Ghanaian some of them are Nigerian, right. um, and they're one family. Right. Um, the more that that's true in the world, that, that if you want to understand, my nephew's name is Christian Andresen, so you might think frightfully Norwegian, but <laughs> this guy is a you know he's a he's in the computer business in in Namibia. His wife <laughs> is Namibian. His 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 boy is uh, is a cute uh, less than one year old. Uh, is you know half. Half Namibian and uh, whatever it is, some fraction, half quarter Norwegian and an eighth Ghanaian and an eighth uh, British. Um, the more there are people like that in the world, the less you will know about someone if you say he's Norwegian, right. he's right. he's Ghanaian, and so on. And you don't know very much. I mean, there's a lot you don't know now if you say that. Right. Um, the the the. The, 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 I'm an American, and Trump's followers in in uh, you know in Mississippi are American. Right. We're not terribly similar in lots of ways, uh, though maybe there are some people in in Mississippi who who are terribly like me. You know, who are right, right. you know interracial uh, gay uh, philosophers. I don't know. Right. Um. But 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 the 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 more we recognize that. These things matter. I don't mean to deny these things matter to people. That's why it says that bind. Right. They do matter to people. They do bind, yeah. They can lead people to do good things. Yeah. In the name of American identity, I'm willing to pay taxes to see uh, people, children fed and educated, mm -hmm. um, health care delivered uh, equally to, to all of us, um, uh, um, places protected from... from uh, crime by police force that I'm willing to pay for and I'm willing to pay for the federal police as well as the local police and that means I'm willing to pay for the people to be protected by the FBI in Arizona and in Alaska mm -hmm. as well as New York City. It would make no sense if I didn't think of them as my fellow citizens. Why would I be sending them money to do all this? Right. Well, you somehow uh, have to trick the brain into thinking this person is an honorary member of my clan, family, yes. whatever. I call this the Indugu effect. 
after that uh, Jack Nicholson film about Schmidt. I don't know if you ever saw that, but so Jack Nicholson plays this retired insurance uh, agent and they give him the watch and he's retired, but you know, he's still as active and he's bored. And, um, and so late one night he's watching TV and he comes across one of those infomercials for adopt a child in Africa. So he's like, okay, $30 a month. I can, uh, and it's little Indugu. So here's little Indugu. Here's his name. Here's his picture. He plays soccer. He lives in this little hut here and so on. And so the narrative arc of the film is him writing letters to little Indugu. <clears throat> and, you know, it, it's, it's a typical sort of, you know, middle-class American narrative story. You know, my motorhome broke down and my daughter's marrying this nincompoop and I can't stand him. And he's going on and on about his life. And, you know, poor little Indugu can, can't even read and he barely has anything to eat or write. And he doesn't find this out until the end of the movie. But, uh, but there are studies that show... Uh, for example, that is effective. I, I can get you to yes. give 30 bucks a month if I, if I show you one person. But if I show you 10,000 starving children in, 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 in Kenya or whatever, you know, it's just gets right over your head. I, the, too much. Can't do it. I can't no. identify with a group. I can identify with one. You know, so nonprofits have figured this out. I'm not sure corporations or governments have figured it out. Uh, you know, how to tap into that evolved psychology of us. You know, we care about our extended family. Maybe 150 people or so is about the extent of our our um, our sympathies uh, to to extend. Anyway, it's just a, a thought that occurred to me when. No, you know, no. I mean, I think that it, it is striking that you can get. And again, it, it runs against the kind of myth about identity that you can get people to bond across what look like enormous identity divides if you just present them to each other as it were one on one. Um, right. I can I can think of people that I know. Uh, one of my favorite people growing up was unbelievably different from me in every conceivable way. She, she was. She's dead now. She was an old lady. She she, she lived to be over a hundred. Um, she didn't speak any English, which was pretty rare in Ghana. Um, she was uh, very traditional-minded. Um, she spoke a beautiful version of Tree, my father's language, which was lovely to listen to. And she was very interested in and preoccupied with the lives of the people she knew about, which was a lot of people because she was a well-connected person. Um, she wasn't at all interested in my life. Uh, when I went to see her, she would never say, oh, how are things in America? She would just start talking about the things we normally talk about, which were around her. Now, the only reason she let me into her life was that she was very close to my father, and he was part of her kind of hmm. traditional social world. But once I was in, so it just took that, that one thing. Hmm. So I was in. Right. She was she loved me, and I loved her. Right. And I, you know, so and I, she wasn't literate. I mean, there were lots of things. She was very, very different from me in all kinds of conceivable ways. So, so here, think, here are liberal sensitivities uh, lean toward travel, reading, the internet, these sorts of things that can override these other identity characteristics that are important, but provisionally important. If yes. I actually know you. Uh, you know, so one of the explanations for the rapidity, uh, the speed with which the you know the gay rights revolution came about compared to uh, women's rights and civil rights was the uh, exposure uh, uh, on television, films, you know, narrative stories and, and so on. Ellen DeGeneres just, you know, coming mm -hmm. out, you know, and oh, so I, this, I like this person and OK, so I can yes. accept them. Yes. No, I think I think one, one of the important tools for dealing with the bad side of identity 
is remembering um, that we have, first of all, we have many identities, so that the ones that divide us uh, are only some of them, some of them we share. But, but I think the other thing is, is what you're talking about, which is um, that um, um, getting to know people, not in order to build bridges and not because you have some theory about identity, just because you're running a little league together for your kids or you're, or you're an opera society in, in Milan or you're, you're, right. you're playing soccer with people in, on the, in the weekend soccer league in Brooklyn. Um, people who are very, very diverse in the obvious ways can do those things together. And once you know some people of the other kinds through that kind of activity, it's really hard to maintain prejudices mm -hmm. against all of their kind. Right. You, you sort of, when people say, as you said in the gay case, I think, um, when people didn't know they knew gay people, <laughs> right, then when you said gay people, they weren't thinking about anybody. Right, right. <laughs> or at least not anybody they knew. They, right. they were thinking about some strange person, maybe, or some or right. somebody, uh, somebody they'd seen somewhere or heard about. In West Hollywood, at that parade. <laughs> right, exactly. Which is, you know, off-putting for lots of people. But if you... If you say gay, and I think, oh, that's that's my friend James, right. that's my friend uh, Jeannie, uh, and then people start saying bad things about you, then you well, no, I'm not going to go along with that. Right. Um, and even if people have, as it were, principled reasons for worrying about homosexuality, maybe they're genuinely convinced that it's immoral, they can be friends with gay people if they're given a chance. Right. Um, so that uh, there genuinely are people in the United States who are, say, against gay marriage, but have real friendships with gay people. And they would probably go to their weddings, even, right. they, even they don't approve of them, <laughs> exactly. So um, I think that, that, and that's one of the good things about people, is that we're not actually rigorous, uh, rigorously consistent in all our theoretical commitments, that we're able to let things go, right? right? And and make you know make sense of our lives in that way. I, there's a wonderful episode in a in a British television program that I used to watch um, called Skins, which is about mm. um, kids growing up in Bristol in England, mm. not far from where I spent my time in England as a child. And, and one of the kids, one of the white kids, has a friend who's a Muslim boy of Pakistani ancestry, and the white kid is gay. And his friend knows this, his friend who is straight, his Pakistani friend, and nevertheless, he's a young Brit, so he thinks that's fine. But he knows that his parents will have difficulty, so he, he won't tell his parents. And his parents are very close to the white kid, too. So one day, the white kid refuses to come into the, his, his friend's birthday party because he's, he said, you, you said you would tell them, and you haven't told them, and I'm, you know, I'm sort of fed up with it. So then the father comes out and says, why are you not coming in? And he says, because your son hasn't told you something that I asked you, him to tell you. I said, well, why didn't you tell me? <laughs> As he's about to tell him, the son says, he's gay. And the, the, the boy says, yes, I'm gay. And the father looks at him and he says, look, I'm a Muslim. And Friday in mosque is the best day of my week. But I don't know everything. And here's what I do know. You're my son's best friend. Hmm. So please come in. Hmm. So he doesn't... He doesn't say homosexuality is okay. Mm -hmm. right? He just says, well, we can muddle through in these circumstances. The most important thing is that you're my son's friend. So here he's putting another criteria of identity, friendship, I guess, or yep. member of our, our immediate circle. That yep. overrides the other one. Time, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and thank God. 
Right, so we don't have to have acceptance, at least in the beginning, just not intolerance. Not intolerance. And then, of course, one thing tends to lead to the other, which is why the people who want to maintain intolerance don't want to move to accept a sort of, you know, (laughs) mild acceptance. Now, your your fourth C class, uh, this is kind of a new one, I think, uh, particularly with the the rise of after the the financial meltdown and the, you know, the 99 percenters versus the one percenters. It feels like this class warfare uh, even though, even while uh, poverty is going extinct, you know, as the Gates Foundation tracks uh, closely, you know, we've gone from 90% impoverished a century ago to about 10% impoverished now, as defined by the UN, $2 a day or less. Globally. Yeah, globally, yeah. So this is all good news in the long run, and yet there's still this psychology of even if I have a TV and an air conditioner and a microwave and so on, the people around me uh, that I see as my equals have, you know, 10 times as much as I do. Or, right. you know, the people down in L.A. that uh, have the big jobs, you know, they have 100 times more than I do. That makes me feel like I'm a lower class. So we have uh, objective measures of wealth per capita, GDP, whatever. Uh, but that seems less important in terms of how you're talking about class identity of the relative comparison yeah. uh, across groups. I, I, I mean, I think that that's so. um uh, we're uh, one of the things we are as a species is somewhat prone to hierarchical yeah. uh, things. Where especially we like to be above other people in some respect or other. M- money is one of them, but it isn't by any means the only one. There are there are status hierarchies that don't correspond at all to how much money you have. Uh, Donald Trump is 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 not terribly high in certain kinds of status hierarchies, though he's one of the richest people uh, in the country apparently. Um, yeah, people I know in New York real estate say he's way down. Wouldn't even get invited to the. You wouldn't get invited to the, to the big parties, right? <laughs> right. And um, and I gather that has upset him, and that may explain some of his behaviour. <laughs> yes. so I'm sorry they didn't invite him to those parties, but um, so there are these different hierarchies. Um, I wanted to make two central points about about class. One is that. Um, uh, is that we live now with a kind of ideology of meritocracy, which is pretty misleading. Mm. If um, if the if Ivy League universities take um, more uh, of their students from the top one percent of the income distribution than from the bottom sixty percent, you can't tell me that that corresponds to the distribution of talent. Mm. Um, it does correspond to the distribution of money mm-hmm. and, and social capital uh, connections. So I think um, so. So, and of course, the the ideology of meritocracy is doing the job of letting the people who are doing very well think that that's fine because they deserve it. And I think I want to question whether that's a good way to think about the distribution. Now, I happen to be uh, I'm not an egalitarian about about money and wealth. I think it's just fine for people to have different amounts of money and wealth. What I am is a sufficientarian in the philosopher's jargon. I think everybody should have enough. Mm. And then mm-hmm. and then beyond that, I think you should let the market and so on determine. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are plenty of people in the United States who don't have enough. If if kids are going hungry to yep. their in the United States, that's wrong and we should do yep. something. Yep. But I, I, I don't have any focus on generating a world in which everybody has the same amount of stuff. Uh, money or, or wealth or anything like that. But if you have a society where there's a strong correlation between respect and money, mm. 
between respect and cultural capital and money, that education and the things that education brings and money, then what happens is that people who are low in social capital, that is low in connections, low in cultural capital, haven't been to college, and low in financial capital, are cut out of one of the most important things that social life is about, which is respect. Mm -hmm. Denied respect. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think you have to make everybody have the same amount of money to to make sure that everybody has respect. As I say, I don't believe that, and I, and I don't care about that. But I do care about respect. I do think that self-respect yeah. is... Good. And dignity and, uh, is also another word that uh, sociologists use that, that, that has some form of value to people. Very uh, much so, yeah. yes. And I think it's normatively important. That is, I think that, that we shouldn't undermine people's dignity. We should but, try and make social arrangements. I mean, there are bad people, right? I, I, there are people who don't deserve respect because they've done bad things. I'm not talking about them. I'm just talking about regular people who aren't very successful in the ways that are currently valued in our society. So they can't make a lot of money. Uh, they can't um, be invited to be on fancy boards and so on, right? And those people, many of them are much harder working than some of the people who've got more mm -hmm. stuff. Um, those people shouldn't be denied the, the possibility of thinking of themselves as worthwhile people. And that's that's the real... So the mistake, the mistake is that people make is thinking, if I can get up into that class socioeconomically... Mm -hmm. I will also share the dignity and respect of those people that I think I want, and it doesn't always work out like that. Well, not only that, but um, that's the only way in which people <laughs> oh. think they can get the dignity and self-respect, and right. that's ridiculous. Right. I mean, uh, um, by you know, once you've got hierarchies, uh, then somebody's going to be at the bottom. Right. Somebody's going to be at the top, and somebody's going to be at the bottom. The being at the bottom of some hierarchy, say of wealth, shouldn't. We shouldn't have a society in which people at the bottom of the hierarchy, well, have to think of themselves as kind of failures and and, and lacking in some Right. Well, let's, uh, we've been going for a little over an hour here. I, I don't want to miss out on the last one, culture. Um, I had to memorize when I took anthropology the great Tyler's definition, which you quote here in your book. Culture is that complex whole which includes... Knowledge, belief, arts, morals, laws, customs, and any other capabilities and habits acquired by man as a member of society in that classic 19th century way of writing things, uh, which is pretty much everything else other than the four C's that you described before yeah. of what is culture. This seems to be the most fluid of all. Uh, and I'm here, I'm thinking of the whole um, intersectional theory and the sort of... What, what sometimes called the oppression Olympics in academia, you know, which is the most oppressed group. Uh, and, you know, culture is all wound up in that. And there's this whole business about cultural appropriation. We had a, a silly controversy a few years ago in a local university here, Taco Tuesdays, uh, you know, Spanish food in, in Southern California is pretty big, you know, so Taco Tuesday, but, but this was a group of white kids, not Hispanic kids who were holding this Taco Tuesday thing. And so that was a big controversy. It seems like uh, things have gotten really messy uh, in, in recent years with that uh, issue. Yeah, I think the, um, I mean, one problem with the way we talk about culture is that there's Tyler's notion, which you, which you just uh, read out, which, which is one notion I think is a perfectly sensible way of dividing up some territory. And then at the same time as Tyler was writing that, Matthew Arnold in Culture and Anarchy was talking about culture in the other sense, in which opera and novels mm. and poems are culture. So-called um, high culture. High culture. Ta tacos are not 
culture in Arnold's sense, but they are <laughs> right. they are culture in um, in uh, Tyler's sense. And um, the, the so what I want to say about Tyler and, uh, about culture in Arnold's sense is that that belongs to those who do the work. Mm. <laughs> um, Shakespeare belongs to the great Indian literary critics who write about Shakespeare, the great Japanese literary critics who write about Shakespeare, mm. just as much as it belongs to Matthew Arnold mm. or, or uh, Harold Bloom or some great American critic. That's not how those things, those things you get to ship. You get, in the only sense in which you can own them is that sense. You can study them and you can commit to making sense of them. Um, there's, there's, there's copyrights and stuff like that as well, but that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, in culture, in that sense, um, appropriation is the game. Hmm. It's the only right. thing that works. Um, it's, all, favorite, it's all appropriation. It's all appropriation <laughs> and a good thing, too. Yeah. Um, my favorite example here is that you couldn't think of anything more Japanese than uh, Basho, the great haiku master of the mm -hmm. 17th century, narrow road to the deep thought. Nothing more Japanese than that. But the guy's a Zen Buddhist, which means that his religious tradition comes from India. Mm. And he's writing in a script which comes from China. <laughs> right. And if he had refused the script and refused Zen Buddhism, he wouldn't have been Basho. It wouldn't have been the Japanese person that he was. Right. So, and the same is true of Shakespeare's, you know, Shakespeare's prince is a Dane. Right. He shouldn't have stolen Danish history. He should have stuck with English <laughs> right. princes. Uh, and so on. So I think um, in that domain, I just think it, it's crazy. And I mean, you know, the other way around. Um, um, what would jazz be if it weren't allowed instruments right. developed in Germany? Right. Like the pianoforte. Right. right. That's a German hmm. piece of instrumentation. Do we really think that jazz musicians should dump the piano on the grounds that it's not black? Yeah. And so on. So I, th I think that's uh, crazy. Um, but I think also that. Um, people exaggerate the role of that kind of culture in holding together communities. Right. Um, so uh, this city that I live in, New York, is not held together by the fact that we all know uh, uh, the, the novels of Nathaniel Hawthorne or some other great American novelist, or that we are all you know, equipped to make sense of, of uh, some great American poets, like, uh, I don't know, um, Marianne Moore. Um, nor are we held together by our shared love of opera, because lots of people in the city don't love opera. Uh, they don't even know about it, many of them. Uh, uh, but on the other hand, we're not held together by jazz or blues or anything else either. What are we held together by? Well, our capacity to relate to one another in civil ways on the street, which we're very good at. People who don't know New York City have this completely false notion. People in New York are extremely good at being nice to other people, to strangers. Mm -hmm. It's part of our culture. It's And it's our part of our culture, whether we are a recent immigrant from Jamaica or somebody whose ancestors came over, you know, with the Dutch uh, when this was New Amsterdam. So I think... Um, well, that's your previous book, Cosmopolitanism. Yes, right. I mean, when you see the word, you think New York City. You do, yes. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and other great cities. I mean, yeah, I think yeah of course, right. Uh, um, so I think... Um, the the idea that um, you need high culture to hold ordinary that, that that was one of these ideas that goes back to people like Herder and Hegel that I mentioned before. I think it's a mistake. Right. I love these things. I love Basho. I love Shakespeare. I'm not saying that they aren't important. I'm just saying that they aren't important for this. 
Right. Uh, they're important for something else. And the and because they're important for something else, I don't have to say to someone in Ghana, well, I'm not going to waste my time teaching you about Shakespeare because uh, because I should be teaching you uh, the the great uh, literature and pre-literate traditions of Ashanti and, and so on. Um, yes, you should know about those, but you, uh, nothing wrong with giving you access to, to Shakespeare and, and other uh, forms of culture from elsewhere. Um, now, the, the, one of my sort of um, um, uh, targets in that chapter is another story about culture, which says, again, in order to divide us from the world of Muslims, that they have this distinct, remote, different culture and that and that we can't therefore sort of mix and match with them right this is this, this historical nonsense because uh, at the level of high culture uh, there were better Aristotelians in Baghdad in the ninth century <laughs> than anywhere in Western Europe um, right. and um, and it, it's it's nonsense in other ways, because even though there were great uh, Aristotelians in Baghdad in the ninth century, most Muslims didn't know anything about that. Right. So, so, so while that was interesting and important, it has nothing to do with most, any more than most um, than most Christians uh, in in the in sixteenth or seventeenth century Europe knew anything about Saint Augustine right. or, uh, or or the great Christian cultural text. So again, this is part of this idea that high culture is sort of super important in defining. Identities, which I don't think is right, um, except among academics and so on, people who care about high culture, and that, that's 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 where that belongs. It doesn't belong in the general world. Well, that gets me to this issue. You're a professor at NYU, and I'm a professor at Chapman University here in Southern California. Your colleague Jonathan Haidt uh, has a new book coming out uh, next month, "The Coddling of the American Mind," and I share with him some of these concerns about. You know, students are these snowflakes, they can't handle controversy, safe spaces, microaggressions, all these protests at Yale and Berkeley. And if you just watch the evening news, it just seems like, you know, the, the academy is falling apart. And yet when I go to class and I walk around campus, I don't see anything. I mean, just students doing their thing. And I imagine that's the same for you at NYU. 99% of the time, nothing's happening. So I can't decide if we're approaching a crisis or this is just much ado about nothing. I mean, I the the bad episodes that people like John talk about are bad episodes. I grant you that. I grant him that, and I agree with him about that. But the question of how representative they are, what's going on, I think is is one where I'm not. I, I agree with you that it doesn't seem to me so clear, just from my own experience. And remember, I teach about identity all the time. I've written books about identity. I've written about blackness. Uh, I've written about. Um, uh, Africa and so on. These you might think that it would come up in my classes if, if yeah. it were going to come up as a problem. Um, so, so I don't know. I mean, I, I do think that um, there's a there's a there's an industry among administrators <laughs> of worrying mm -hmm. about things that I'd be more relaxed about than they seem to be. Um, Look, uh, but here's my bottom line. Uh, universities, in universities, the guiding project is understanding. Mm -hmm. And if, it's, if getting to understanding involves a bit of pain, that's the price we need to pay. We don't need to 
institutionalize pain or, or insist on unnecessary pain. But if we have to talk about difficult things in order to get understanding of things worth understanding, we should talk about difficult things. Um, you can't teach criminal law if you're not allowed to talk about rape. Rape <laughs> right. is a difficult topic. Right. It's a difficult thing to think about. It's painful. It's painful, frankly, whether you've been raped or not. But of course, it's especially painful if you have been. Um, but you can't have sensible investigations and teaching and thought about criminal law if you can't talk about rape. And similarly, you can't you can't have sensible discussions of um, um, uh, you know um, laws that, uh, for example, add penalties to uh, assaults where the motive is racial uh, hatred. Um, you, can't, you can't discuss those things unless you're allowed to discuss episodes in which racial hatred is expressed. Right. Um, John had a horrible experience because he, he, he mentioned a gay person. He didn't say anything at all anti-gay. He just mentioned a gay person in a way that some gay student didn't like. Mm. We can't have that. Mm. Uh, I, mean, I don't know enough about the details of that particular case, and, and John will tell you about it if you ask him. But my point is that if that's what happened, it shouldn't have happened. Right. Because, because we have to be able to talk about these things. Now, of course, I always say to students when I'm teaching about IDN, but look, we run the risk of upsetting each other, so let's try not to. Right. Let's not let's not, let's not be insensitive. Right. And if and if somebody act, uh, does upset you, let's think about how we're going to handle it. Let's 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 uh, agree that that might be an occasion for us to learn something. Right. Because they, they probably didn't mean it. So how did they? How did someone who didn't mean to upset you about some identity issue come to do so? These right. are all things we're discussing. But let's not. Um, shut up let's not not say things because we're worried that that'll happen um provided we're trying to be uh, polite i mean i you know i'm perfectly capable of enforcing civility in a classroom i don't think that violates any principle of free speech that you have to express yourself in a way that's respectful of the other people in the room but um but any but the fact that somebody in the room takes offense doesn't mean you've done something wrong right it's, it's happened it's worth thinking about what it is but it doesn't mean that they've done something wrong. Uh, if they were trying to express a view and, they, and they've upset you, yeah, it's an interesting thing. Now, another thing I say often is, look, uh, when we're upset, we don't think well. <laughs> right. So it may not be the right moment to bring it up, the moment when you're really upset. Maybe you should come to me or to them and work out right. a way of bringing it back to the class when we're all less upset. Timing, so, timing's important, yes. So I, I, there are lots of things that might go wrong, that might go wrong, and there are lots of things you can do about them. But what you can't do is stop talking. <laughs> I don't mind people having safe spaces that aren't classrooms. I don't right. care what people do in, in other spaces. I, I, you shouldn't. Um, it's impolite to shout uh, Allah Akbar in a Catholic, <laughs> in a Catholic right. church, right? right? Perfectly free to say it in other contexts, but in the Catholic church, it's a safe space for Catholics. They're, they're allowed to expect that other people will behave in ways that conform to Catholic tradition. Yeah. But, um, but, in my, but my classroom is not, in that sense, a safe space. It's, only, it's safe for ideas that are relevant to the thing we're trying to understand. That's, that's how I think about it. Right. That sounds good. Right. Well, right. Kwame, we've been going for uh, almost an hour and a half. Your book is great. I uh, would remind our listeners that you're also a weekly columnist for the New York Times. You write the ethicist column. Yes. And I, I have to tell you, I, you know, I have a background in psychology and, and uh, I've written a couple of books on moral 
uh, morals and philosophy, and I'm always amazed that you come up with the right answer, at least what seems to me the right answer, when I can't think of it. You know, like the latest one was somebody wrote and said that uh, one of their clients has a drinking problem or something. What should I do? I can never think of like, well, I don't know what to tell this guy. <laughs> Just you know, <laughs> ignore it or not. You seem to kind of integrate utilitarianism, deontology, some virtue ethics uh, in, in a way that I, I think is very clever. You could do this or you could try that. You must face yeah. this every week because uh, these, these are hard I, problems. You know, when I was first asked to do this, it was a little bit puzzled because um, – I wasn't sure that my bag of tricks, which is the bag of tricks of the trained moral philosopher, was going to be useful. But as you say, there are these tools in our bag of tricks, as people who know philosophical traditions, that I think do allow people to direct their attention to the features of the situation that are relevant to deciding what to do. And often what's gone wrong is that people have missed out some dimension of the situation that um, that, in, that in my bag of tricks you have to go through to make sure that you've uh, considered the right things. So a lot of, um, I, I, for the last few years I've been teaching a global ethics course and one of the things we do in that course is read some Confucian stuff. Mm. And the thing that I've learned from reading that and that I've very much taken on board is how important uh, our relations are in defining, our relationships are in defining our obligations. Mm. I mean, it, it sounds obvious, and uh, I'm not, there are lots of uh, moments in the history of philosophy in the Western tradition where this point is made. I'm not saying it's never been made in the West, but it's absolutely central to the way Confucians think. And and very often, my way of sort of parsing my way through the problems people have is thinking, well, this is your brother, or this is your friend, or this is your colleague, and those are the things about the situation that seem relevant. Like the, the like the latest one, for example, um, you sort of parsed it between, well, if the client is drinking, but they're not hurting anybody, or at least you don't know if they're yeah. hurting anybody, it's sort of a utilitarian argument. You might lose your business, so you should, shouldn't just yeah. say anything. On the other hand, if it looks like there might be some harm done, then maybe you should say something to the spouse so that it can be an intervention. Yeah. So there you're kind of balancing utilitarianism and maybe duty uh, yes. ethics there. Uh, without yes. calling it uh, that. Yes. Yeah, and I'm not trying to teach people the, the language of philosophy. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, but you must. I, but but in your bag of tricks, I mean, you must have a hundred letters for every one that you publish. So you must have a like a, a set now in your head, like oh, that's number seven problem. Or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> try. You know, I mean, until recently, I've answered every question that the editor sends to me. So uh, except one, which was too long to me for me to figure out how to answer it in a reasonable amount of space. Um, but I'm, I've been doing it a while now, and I'm beginning to feel that um, while my instinctive response might be helpful, it's pretty close to something I've already said. I see. Right. <laughs> but on the other hand, you know, there are new readers coming along, and not everybody's read every column. So I'm trying very hard to continue to answer the questions that come in, right. uh, and trying not always, you know, even if I think it's basically the same as question um, 72, I'm, I'm trying to think, <laughs> right. well, can I say, this time I need to say something different. Well, it's a good exercise because it's not just theoretical. It's not like the trolley right. problem where we're having a thought experiment. You have people with real world problems. Yes. And, and it would be evidence that our philosophical traditions had something wrong with them if they couldn't be brought to bear. <laughs> right. On real, real problems, Because yeah. Aristotle <laughs> correctly said that, uh, I mean, the, well, Kant says that, that, that you know, morality is practical. It's about, in the end, it's about 
It's about uh, right. doing and feeling things. It's not just it's not theoretical in the right. sense of just trying to find out what the truth is. It's about action as well as thought. Well, congratulations on your new book. What's next on the What's next on the docket? <laughs> well, actually, over the next year or so, I hope to finish a book that's about early theorists of religion, hmm. in which Tyler plays a very Ah, uh, yes, I heard you. You gave a lecture somewhere at Princeton. I think yeah. on that. I was following that uh, yesterday. Uh, yeah, it's very interesting. That's a very interesting history. You didn't get to Freud yet. I guess you're probably working your way no, up into the 20th I'm century. Reading Freud right now. Yeah. Thinking yeah. about Freud. And yeah. he's, um, but you did uh, touch on some of the evolutionary arguments, which, which I think are important. Yes. In, in that no, no. The, the last chapter will definitely be about some of the evolutionary psychologists and their uh, very interesting ideas. And in a way, what I'm arguing there is that their the notion of religion that they're bringing to bear is very much shaped by uh, Tyler and Durkheim and Weber mm, and Freud. Right. And that, and that um, while what they're saying is new, it's not the same as what those guys were saying their notion of religion is actually pretty recognizably consistent with with that tradition right. that goes back to, to Tyler. So, but but I agree. I'm I'm very interested in in the evolution psychology of, uh, of religion. What they say about it. Well, we'll have a conversation on that because we got to we have to discuss the new atheism and all the all the <laughs> activism because uh, yes. there's the scholarly end. Uh, part of me is very interested in that scientific explanation for the origins of religion then 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 there's the activist part of me that says well we have to get rid of parts of religion that are dangerous and harmful to people and that's a different question (laughs) yeah i think it is i mean i i think the main point that i would add into that discussion is the point that i made when we were talking about religion which is that when you're thinking about actual religious identities you shouldn't focus solely on the propositions right yeah that's right what people do is what what really matters